Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled you're listening to The God Solution this morning. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview with Dr. Edgar Andrews from England, a world-renowned scientist who has also debated people like Richard Dawkins in the past. This week, we're going to continue that interview, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy the second part of our interview with Dr. Edgar Andrews. He has a PhD and a Doctor of Science degree. He's a fellow of the Institute of Physics in the UK, a fellow of the Institute of Materials, Minerals, and Mining, a chartered engineer, and a chartered physicist. He was also a consultant for the Dow Chemical Company for 30 years and for 3M for 20 years. He began and chaired the Department of Materials at Queen Mary College, University of London. He later served as the Dean of Engineering for that same university. He's authored more than 100 scientific papers. He debated Richard Dawkins on the topic of evolution versus creation back in 1986, and Dawkins was still making excuses for that debate as recently as 2007. He's debated other evolutionists and atheists over the years as well. He has written two Bible commentaries and numerous books, including Who Made God, A Glorious High Throne, Free in Christ, Christ and the Cosmos, God, Science, and Evolution, The Spirit Has Come, From Nothing to Nature, and Others. He is currently pastor of the Campus Church, Wellwyn Garden City. I recently read and absolutely loved his newest book, Who Made God. I would encourage you again to get that book. You can find it at Amazon or wherever you buy books. Learn more about Dr. Andrews at whomadegod.org. That's whomadegod.org and campuschurch.org.uk. Again, campuschurch.org.uk. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Andrews. Hi. The Bible begins with the famous verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So when we look at the biblical hypothesis, we would expect a beginning to the known universe a finite time ago. You discuss this more in your book. Tell me what the science tells us about the beginning of the universe and how that correlates with Genesis 1-1. My non-negotiable position is, first of all, that the beginning of the universe creation, as described in Genesis chapter 1, is historical and not mythological. That's one aspect of my non-negotiable position. And the other aspect is that the beginning of the universe was miraculous. And by that I mean it is something that science can never explain. Not only can't explain now, but will never be able to explain because anything that is miraculous lies outside of the competence of science to discuss it. Having stated those two non-negotiable points, I then respect the views of others who disagree with me. However, my own position allows for there to have been something like a Big Bang origin of the universe, which is the current scientific consensus, shall I say. I believe that not because science says it, but because my interpretation of Genesis 1 is as follows, that the opening verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, does state that original beginning. It does refer to the original beginning. We are then told that the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was upon the face 
of the earth. Then we're told that God said, let there be light. Now, I believe that it was at that point where there was a pre-existing earth, it already been created, along with everything else in the universe, or much of the rest of the universe. It already existed. It was, however, formless and dark, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and that was the beginning of the first day of creation. The chapter itself defines light as day, and day as light. doesn't define it as 24 hours or anything like that. Not a modern conception of a day. It's a period of light. And that light did not appear upon earth until God said, let there be light when the earth already existed. So I am saying that the internal evidence of the chapter is that there was an original creation described in verse 1, and then from that point onwards, the account in Genesis 1 describes what happened either on earth or from an earthly viewpoint. So, for example, the appearance, the creation of the sun, moon, and stars on day 4 reflects not their original creation, but their appearance in the sky as a dense cloud covering cleared. That's my interpretation, and I respect people who disagree with me, but it does bring me to the fact that if you interpret Genesis 1 in that way, if you're interpreting it historically, then you have got room in verse 1 for something like the Big Bang origin. And that, of course, is the consensus of scientific belief and basically, what science tells us is that we live in an expanding universe. If you extrapolate this backwards, you get to what is called a singularity when various quantities become infinite. Temperature becomes infinite. Density becomes infinite. You've got a universe that is incredibly small. And that, that is how the universe began, and it then expanded this is important to understand. The expansion was not of the universe in space. It was the expansion of space itself. Space and time, the fourfold continuum of Einstein's general relativity, appeared out of nothing, and it then expanded. So that's what science is telling us about the universe. All I am saying is that it is not inconsistent with a legitimate interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. I would have to agree. The beginning described in Genesis and the beginning corroborated by science both tell us that there was a non-natural beginning to the universe. And I think those are overwhelming evidences for the existence of a creator. So going on from that description of the beginning of the universe we are also faced with the question of the beginning of life. What we've heard as an answer for this question would be things like the Miller-Urey experiment and the creation of some organic molecules. But what the naturalist really has to give us is an explanation and a realistic explanation for the beginning of life from non-life, not just some organic chemistry. So can science provide that realistic explanation 
for the beginning of life from non-life? My belief is that it cannot. But that's just for the listener's benefit, saying very briefly what life consists of, what our present scientific idea is of the nature of life, the difference between life and non-life. Life essentially consists in information, information, coded information, that is stored on molecules like DNA and RNA, that's ribonucleic acid, and eventually translated into proteins. Now, this fact that life consists of information is the big stumbling block for a chemical explanation of life from non-life. You can't take the constituents of a living cell and just mix them together and produce life. Life does not reside in the chemistry, although the chemistry is amazing. Life consists in the information that is stored on the molecules, just as we store information on a compact disc by burning little pits in the disc surface, microscopic pits. So the information is stored on the DNA molecule. It is then transcribed onto RNA molecules, and those RNA molecules are then translated into proteins. And there is um, an operation of a language there. That being the case, you could imagine a molecule of DNA. It's extremely difficult, incidentally. You can imagine a molecule of DNA possibly coming into existence accidentally. What you cannot imagine is that molecule carrying intelligent, significant, meaningful information. And there's a tremendous difficulty in seeing how even uh, a random molecule of DNA or RNA or protein could have just happened. I really mustn't go into the chemistry, but one of the things is that, that those molecules are built from, certainly either DNA and RNA, are built purely from left-handed and right-handed molecules respectively. In other words, there is a selection there between two identical molecules, except for the fact that they're mirror images of each other. And unless you have a chain of identical molecules with the same image, mirror image, then you don't get a DNA molecule and you don't get an RNA molecule. So there are great difficulties in the chemistry, but quite apart from the chemical difficulties of creating a biological molecule, accidentally, by chance, with no human uh, chemist to direct the process, you have got the problem of the origin of the information that is actually what constitutes life. That can never happen accidentally. It can happen, perhaps, if a skilled chemist performs um, a lot of painstaking work to build one of those molecules, copying life. Uh, Craig Venter, of course, has done this copied uh, the DNA of a, an existing organism and had been able to build that DNA in the lab. But he, he's copying, simply copying as a skilled individual with high intelligence 
and tremendous technique, he is producing something that simply mimics real life. Now, Craig Venter wasn't there when life began, nor was anyone else. In other words, it either had to begin purely by chance and accident, which I say is impossible, or else it had to be the product of a creative being, God himself. I couldn't agree more. I definitely think you're right on the money there. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. We are interviewing Dr. Edgar Andrews from England. He is the author of Who Made God and numerous other books, a Christian apologist that's debated some of the biggest atheists in the world, and a wonderful person to have on the show. We interviewed him last week as well. I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you missed it, you can get it at godsolutionshow.com. Again, that's godsolutionshow.com. And I hope you enjoy the rest of this second part of the interview with Dr. Andrews. As a chemist, when I look at the reaction kinetics and the chemical processes and all that just to get that DNA strand in the first place, I realize that is statistically impossible. And then we have the even bigger problem of the information itself. So that being said, what about Darwinian evolution and various new versions of that? What does the science tell us are the problems with the theory of evolution? The first thing we have to do is to define what we mean by evolution. Because there's a lot of obfuscation, which is, I think, deliberate on the part of the evolutionist about the theory. And I'm aware of the fact that it's a bit out of date now, but I'm going to use the distinction between micro-evolution and macro-evolution. Micro-evolution is the kind of thing that will produce any number of different breeds of dog, for example, from some common stock. And that is something that is proven and established. It's usually done not by natural selection, but by human selection. You can develop new varieties of flowers and new varieties of wheat and maize and so on. This is microevolution in which you're not changing the essential nature or interbreeding potential of the organism in question. I mean, dogs will breed with dogs, even a Great Dane with a Pekingese, in principle. They're still the same species. They're simply varieties within the species. And I think this microevolution, depending on how you define a species, can account for minor speciation. That is to say, the rise of two species from a single original. But they are still essentially the same species with minor variations, depending, as I say, on how you define a species. Now, there is absolutely no quarrel. A creationist like myself has no quarrel with microevolution. It is established, proven, no problem. But what then happens, of course, is that microevolution, which can be observed in a truly scientific manner, is extrapolated over vast periods of time in an attempt to account for the 
development from a single original life form of the entire biosphere of all the living things that ever existed. In other words, it seeks to explain how birds evolved from dinosaurs, or dinosaurs from birds. There's some new data showing that birds are much earlier than uh, was thought in the fossil record. Macroevolution is almost by definition unproven and unprovable, because we can't ever observe it. All we can do is to look back at the fossil record and say, well, look, these different varieties of life arose sequentially according to the order of fossils in the strata, which is, is a debatable issue in itself, of course, but I'll leave that on one side. These arose, and therefore we must infer that one creature turned into another, that the whales, you know, that cows turned into whales, and, and that, that uh, dinosaurs turned into birds, and so on and so forth. Now, that is not a valid theory. It could be a hypothesis, but a very difficult to see how you're ever going to validate that hypothesis. And in fact, although the fossil record is commonly claimed as irrefutable evidence for macroevolution, it is, of course, nothing of the kind. You've got two creatures that are similar but somewhat different in the fossil record. There is absolutely nothing to tell you that one was the evolutionary parent of the other. And indeed, some leading paleontologists, people who study fossils, have gone on record saying that the fossil record does not validate the hypothesis of common descent. The gaps and the actual nature of the fossil record simply show long periods of stasis when nothing is changing, even if you accept the geological record as a timeline, which is questionable, but nevertheless, if you accept that, and they say there are long periods of stasis, that nothing changes in a given phylum, for example, in kind of animal, and then there is a sudden transition without transition of species to some different order of creatures. The Cambrian explosion is often cited as a prime example of this, when suddenly in Cambrian rocks there appear almost all the phyla that we know today, the major divisions of life, without any visible precursors. So what they have done, and Stephen Jay Gould was a well-known paleontologist who advanced what he called the theory of punctuated equilibrium. And his theory says that evolution occurred rapidly off stage. In other words, there was an isolated population of some creatures which underwent very rapid evolution. Because it was a small population, because the evolution was very rapid, there's no record of it in the fossil record. And then they broke out of their enclave, as it were, and spread over the world. So you began to get examples of the newly evolved creatures suddenly appearing in the fossil record without any precursors. Now, the only reason he advanced the theory of punctuated equilibrium was because the fossil record did not support macroevolution. 
And so he had to find a different evolutionary hypothesis to keep faith with his evolutionary beliefs. He was one of the few that was willing to be honest about the evidence. I know he said that the fossil record, and this is a direct quote if I'm not mistaken, the fossil record contains precious little in the terms of intermediary species. And there are other professionals in this field, other authorities in this field, like Richard Leakey, who said there is nothing to truthfully purport as a transitional species to man. When you hear statements like that coming from the highest authority in that field, you have to conclude that the fossil record isn't the proof that some would have us believe it is. I would agree with you on that point. So how do science and faith overlap, and where does science lead us concerning life's biggest existential questions? My belief is that faith, or rather the God who reveals himself in the Bible, and faith in him, who reveals himself primarily, of course, in the scriptures themselves, and then in the person of Jesus Christ, that faith in Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, of course, is a triune God, that that faith doesn't so much overlap science as embrace it, because science is the discovery of God's creation, or the exploration, if you like, of God's creation. Johann Kepler, going way back several centuries, who discovered the laws of planetary motion before Newton's time, is said to have cried out, Oh God, I am thinking your thoughts after you. And that has been the attitude of scientists historically, that they were privileged to explore and discover the glories of God in the natural world. And, of course, St. Paul says this in the first chapter of his letter to the Church at Rome. You know, he says the invisible things of God are plainly seen, being revealed by the things that are made. He names those things, the eternal power and Godhead of God are revealed in the natural world. And he goes on to say that men are therefore without excuse when they turn their backs upon God. So the realities of a world created by God, a world in which he is Lord of heaven and earth, and Paul preached to the Athenian philosophers, he said that God is Lord of heaven and earth. He goes on to say he gives to all life and breath and all things. And goes on a little further to say that in him we live and move and have our being. The God of the Bible is too big for us to comprehend, um, yet he himself comprehends all things. He is the originator, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, and the scientist is privileged to progressively discover the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in the natural world and that reflect the glory of God, unfortunately only to those who have eyes to see it. You say, where did it lead us concerning life's biggest existential questions? Well, it doesn't lead us to a solution. What it does is it leads us to its own boundaries and hand us over 
to theology, if you like, put it that way. And I'd like to just quote something that I quote in my book, and this might be a suitable point at which to finish our discussion. An astrophysicist, Robert Jastro, who wrote a book in which he says, and this is the quotation, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I don't really know what Robert Jastro believes. He might be writing as a Christian, or he might just be acknowledging the fact that when science reaches its limit, or its mountain peak, if you like, it discovers, or, or must at least hand us over, to theology. It can't take us to an understanding of the ultimate reality that is God. Would you like to tell our audience anything else about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is God's last word to mankind, I believe. I quoted earlier that verse from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, that God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, it seems to me that that's the first three verses of the letter to the Hebrews. But if anyone wants an answer to the question you just asked, then the answer is right there in those three Bible verses, because it shows us Jesus Christ, as God's messenger. It shows us Jesus Christ as the creator, the agent of creation, if you like. It shows us Jesus Christ as the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. It shows us Jesus Christ as the express image of the invisible God in terms of his nature and his wisdom. And it shows us Jesus Christ as the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's a beautiful, brief statement of everything that is encapsulated in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, says Colossians, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Jesus Christ is, if you like, the, the door. He calls himself the door, doesn't he? The door into an understanding and an experience of God in his saving grace. That is why Jesus is unique. I am, he says, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is the Jesus Christ I believe in. Dr. Andrews, thank you so much for a wonderful interview. I'm just so thankful that you were on the show this morning, and I'm so thankful for all you've done throughout the course of your life and career, and especially for your recent book, Who Made God. Thanks again for being on the show, and thank you again for writing such a phenomenal book. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. As we wrap up the last two weeks of interviews with Dr. Andrews, I want to be very clear about what all this means. 
all of that comes to life in the person, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Jesus Christ claimed to be the only way. And we can either reject him or accept him concerning that claim. I believe the evidence, and you heard some of that this morning, leads to the conclusion that we should accept him and all that he claimed. If you're at a place where you're saying, yes, I would like to respond to Christ and to accept him for all that he claimed, you could do that right now by faith through prayer. You could say, Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive my sins. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Please be my Savior and Lord. The Bible says the moment you put your faith in him, he literally adopts you into his family, guaranteeing you an abundant life of purpose on this planet and an eternity lived with him in heaven forever. You could meet with other people that would be glad to encourage you in your walk with God, wherever that happens to be, at Calvary Chapel this morning. They meet at 1775 Florida Road. That's in the Seventh-day Adventist building. And they'll be meeting there this morning at 9.30 a.m. I would also like to invite you to connect this week. We're going to be meeting in Noble 125 at 6 p.m. Again, we'll be meeting for Connect this week in Noble 125 at 6 p.m. Get all of our previous shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Have a great Sunday.